You are now listening to the May 23rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian from Story of Kings. Last week, we learned how Saul, who was Israel's first king, met his tragic death after being rejected by God. Until his demise, Saul believed David was a threat to his kingship, so he tried to kill him. David escaped Saul's grip with the help of his wife, Michael, and his friend, Jonathan. He was then chased by Saul and his soldiers, but was able to elude them. David began his life in the desert. David was on the run, but men came to him. They were the troubled, indebted, and desperate. People with bitter hearts and rejected by their families came looking for him. Their numbers became 400. David was the leader of these people, and together they began a communal living. For David, it was a time of nomadic life, a life on the run, a hard life. However, unbeknownst to David, God was in fact training him and preparing him to be the anointed king of Israel. God sent the prophet Gad so David's faith would not be shaken. God also sent Abiathar to serve in the role of chief priest. David was fundamentally different from Saul. David was clearly of a different spirit altogether. He was principled and had a strong sense in the ways of God. While David was in the desert of En Gedi, Saul came after him with 3,000 soldiers. At one point, Saul walked into a cave to relieve himself. David and his men happened to be hiding in that very cave. Imagine a scene in a dark cave. There was Saul relieving himself without suspecting anything and David and his men were right there in the dark. David's men told David that this was the chance to kill Saul once and for all. However, David didn't allow it. He said King Saul was God's anointed. So David snuck behind Saul, and instead of putting him under his sword, he cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Even though Saul tried to harm him, David acknowledged God's sovereignty and knew that God would decide the future of the person he anointed. David knew he had to obey God's will. David's life on the run was full of uncertainty and with little resources. David ran even as far as Gath, which was Goliath's hometown. Achish, who was the king of Gath at the time, took a liking to David and wanted to help him. But he couldn't because the people in his service were against it. Who would want to help a person that had cut down their hometown hero? The situation became so tenuous that David had to act like an insane person so he could escape Gath. After some years of wandering with options running out, David took his men and went back to Gath again. For a year and four months, David lived as a Philistine along with his 600 men and their families. He even operated as part of a Philistine regiment fighting against Israel. One thing led to another. David eventually took up residence in Ziglag, which was an unoccupied town in Philistine. All of a sudden, danger came upon David. The Philistine king decided the time was right to attack Israel, especially when he heard King Saul was completely distracted by his obsession to kill David. The Philistine king mobilized all the Philistine armies and began marching toward Israel. Now, as you might suspect, part of this big Philistine army was David and his men. David was caught between a rock and a hard place. If he followed the order of King Achish, then he would in fact stand as an enemy of Israel. But if he disobeyed the order, 
then his loyalties toward the Philistines would be called to question. David was in a serious dilemma, basically in a life-and-death situation. Even then, David didn't act on his own thought, but left everything to God. As King Achish ordered, David took his men and arrived at Aphek. Then God did something amazing for David. The commanders of the Philistines said they couldn't go into battle with David. From their perspective, they could not completely trust him. They even became angry at King Achish for calling in David. King Achish finally acquiesced and David didn't have to go into battle against his own people. David depended on God and God took care of the problem in the most unsuspecting way. However, the sense of relief didn't last long. When they returned to Ziglag, the town was on fire. While they were gone, the town had been looted and set on fire. It was the Amalekites. They knew Ziglag was without its fighting men and decided to attack it. They took all the women, children, and elderlies as captives. David's men, David's men who witnessed this treacherous sight, became so despondent they began to weep. They were out of their mind and began to blame David and even tried to stone him. Even in such a dire situation, David kept his faith in God and inquired of God's will. God told David to pursue the Amalekites, for he would overtake them and rescue all the captives. David and his men collected themselves and began to pursue the Amalekites' war party. The pursuit was not easy. Of the 600 soldiers David had, 200 were too exhausted to continue the pursuit. So only 400 followed David. When they finally caught up with the Amalekites, they were having a feast. David and his soldiers descended on them in a surprise attack. They attacked them with all their might. That day, David and his men had a great victory in the battle, and almost all the Amalekites were dead. As God said, they were able to rescue all of their family members that had been taken. Also, they gained much more livestock and spoils than what was taken from them. After a while, David received the news that King Saul and Jonathan had died in a battle with the Philistines. Ironically, that was the battle David would have fought in against the Israelites had God not intervened and prevented David from marching with the Philistines. When David heard the news, he couldn't contain his sorrow. David tore his clothes. He mourned and wept and fasted until evening. David suffered a long time while being chased by King Saul. However, even at the prospect of finally attaining peace and not having to run any longer, David did not celebrate. He was mourning the death of Saul and Jonathan. He was also sad that God's glory was not revealed in the defeat of the Israelites. At this important juncture in his life, David did what a man of faith would do. He asked God, what he should do now. God told David to go to Hebron. Hebron had historic significance. It was a place where Abraham first purchased a piece of land after he left Ur of Chaldeans and arrived in Canaan. You see, land signified permanence. Hebron was also the place where Abraham's wife was buried and where Ishmael and Isaac buried their father Abraham. God led David to this place. When David arrived in Hebron, the elders of Judah asked him to be the king of Judah. David accepted and was crowned as king of Judah. About 15 years had passed since David was anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel. He was now about 30 years old. This concludes today's episode of Story of Kings. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.
Next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is the evidence of a new walk. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. We've been talking about pointing people to Jesus. And one of the greatest evidences of the power of Jesus is the evidence of a changed life. And in Acts chapter 3, if you open your Bible there, we're going to look at one of those instances where somebody's life was changed dramatically because of Jesus Christ. So in Acts chapter 3, we'll begin with the first verse. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Okay, the ninth hour of prayer was when they would go up every single day, they would make a trip to the temple and pray. They had set times for prayer. The Jews had set times for prayer, and apparently Peter and John had no problem with keeping up that practice. I think that's a good idea, frankly. I think it's a a cool idea to set set times for prayer throughout the day. 
And I don't mean that you've got to go into a room and pray for five minutes. I'm thinking just set a little alert on your watch or on your cell phone, just a little alert that will remind you, hey, it's not in the morning. I want to shoot up a prayer. Lord, give me guidance. Lord, keep me focused on you today, maybe at noon, maybe at three or something. Why not, right? I think it's a good idea. And so I see that from our apostles doing this. And then it's at nine. It's the ninth hour of the day. The Jews started the day at six. So the ninth hour is at three in the afternoon. I think it's kind of significant that Peter is observing this hour as prayer because something else happened not many weeks before on the ninth hour. Anybody know what happened? Jesus cried out at the ninth hour on the cross, it is finished. So here you go. Maybe there's something tied to that because the actual hour of sacrifice was an hour before Peter and James got there. So they weren't really observing the sacrifice that had already been completed by Jesus. Instead, they're observing that time when and Jesus finished the work of salvation. Verse 2 points us to someone else. And a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. So this lame man who was a beggar because he couldn't work, he came and he was put down at the beautiful gate. He couldn't go into the temple courts because he had a defect. Okay, that was the law. I'm not going to comment on that. It was just, if you had any defect, you weren't allowed to come into the Lord's presence. Probably because it represents sin and how sin keeps us out of the presence of God. But he was laid at the beautiful gate, one of the wonderful entrances into the temple area. It's called the beautiful gate because, frankly, it was beautiful. It really was. We're told by Josephus, a Jewish historian, that this gate was 75 feet tall, both doors made out of solid bronze, and the the bronze had been polished so bright that it outshone the other gates that were covered with silver or covered with gold. So this was a spectacular place, and it just so happened that Peter and James were going to go into the temple area through this gate. And here is this uh, man who is paralyzed and he's asking for money. Maybe he has, he wouldn't have a tin cup then, but he has some way of asking for alms. Maybe they're on the mat, people would see and throw down shekels or something like that. Even today, and you'll see here in, in cities, I was in Maryland, but I was noticing that along the streets in the snow, there were beggars who were laying on the street grids trying to keep uh, warm from the steam that was coming up. I've been in Jerusalem. Every year I go, and this has been for, for over a decade, there's two ladies that I see every year. Just before you go down into the area where the Western Wall is, where they pray at the wall, they'll be stationed at the entrance of that area, and they will be begging, and they'll be asking, they'll say tzedakah, which means righteousness. And it's considered a righteous thing, a pious thing, to give alms to the poor as you're coming to the temple. And so all these thousands of people that are coming through these gates into the temple, and of course, beggars would want to be there. To this day, you guys, Jewish families, when the Sabbath, the Shabbat begins on Friday night, and Proverbs 19:17 says this, if you help the poor... You are lending to the Lord, and he will repay you. Amen. God blesses when we bless others. Now look at verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Now many people are rushing in and out, and they are not looking at this beggar. You know how it is. There'll be people who are asking for money. You can see them. And, and it's like you rush by, you don't make eye contact, you try to ignore them. Even at the intersections when you see somebody with their sign and they want money, a lot of you look the other way. I mean, how many of you do that? You have done that. You have been known to do that. Yeah, 
or you put on your sunglasses so there's no eye contact. And it's just, you're not feeling led to do anything. But here's eye contact. We see eye contact happening. It says, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And it says in verse 4, Peter returned that eye contact. It says, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. They looked at him. And so the beggar saw them, and, and he knew. I mean, he realized, hey, this is somebody who might give me something. And so Peter said, look at us. Verse 5. And the beggar fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. He's right to expect something from them. They were making the contact. Surely there was a connection. He's right to expect something from him, but it's not what he is expecting, is it? So Peter said to him, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, what gang, read it, rise up and walk. I don't have any money, but what I do have, I give to you. Get up. And he took him by the right hand. Oh, we'll finish verse seven. He took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them. I love this. Walking and leaping and praising God. Here is one excited. He's so excited. No, I see a stupendous miracle here. We got to think about what's happening, you guys. This man has never walked. He would have basically no calf muscles, no thigh muscles. He would have no core strength at all. He'd have some strength most likely in his arms, but he wasn't moving, and suddenly he is raised up. So the guy, he gets up, he's got thighs, his core strength is there. I mean, come on, he's walking and he's leaping and praising God. What a miracle. He's not with a walker. He is, this miracle is complete. And he enters the temple with Peter Think about something with me here. Peter and John stopped. I want to think about this just for a second before we move on. Peter and John stopped. What if Peter and John hadn't stopped? What if they had hurried on to go to church, you know, so to speak? What if they had hurried on to do God's business? But they stopped. They could have avoided the man. They would have saved themselves some time. They could have avoided the interruption. But Peter and James realized that God was in this moment, and they listened to God's voice. I can just imagine. They're looking around, and God will say, this person, this person, it's him, you go to this person. They heard God's voice in the interruption. Maybe we should hear God's voice more often. When things disrupt our plans when there's maybe a person in the way, so to speak. Instead of stepping over or avoiding, we listen to the Lord, and the Lord might say, hey, help out. Be a blessing. Now, what would that look like for us? I just want to ask you that question. Uh, probably it's not going to look like us seeing someone paralyzed and saying, get up in the name of Jesus. I mean, that's not beyond the realm of possibility, but it's Probably not what's going to happen. But what about just doing nice things in Jesus' name? Stopping and instead of rushing and not even looking at the person who is scanning your groceries, you look up and you say, hey, how's your day going? Hey, how are you doing? How's your day going? Are people being nice to you? And they get a chance and you're that friendly person. And it's really the Lord Jesus working through you. That server at the restaurant, how are you doing? How's your day going? I'll think about encouraging and getting to know people and, and just asking questions because you care. Think about doing random acts of kindness and love in Jesus' name. I mean, one time I was driving by a vehicle that was broken down on the freeway and it was like 113 degrees out. And a guy was changing his tire. And look, I am no good. I would be no help changing your tire, okay? If I came by, it would not be the angel who came to help me. You know those stories? <laughs> no. But what God did put on my heart, it was close to the office. And I, and I thought, 
God just spoke to me, look, I know you got an appointment, I know you got stuff to do, but I want you to stop. I want you to get uh, two cold, cold waters, and I want you to drive all the way back around, and I want you to give this guy some cold water. You know, Jesus says, when you even give a cup of cold water in my name, you've done it to me. I didn't do it because of that, but I thought of it afterwards. Just doing kind things for people. I don't go to McDonald's often, but sometimes on Sunday morning I'll go, you know, it's just like quick and something. And this is something I do. It's just one of those things I think could fit into just blessing someone. I don't know what's going on. But there'll be a lot of times when I'll say, I'll be paying for mine and I'll say, hey, I'll pay for the person behind me. Just let me pay for them. Now, loving, caring expression was just going all the way down the line. I don't know when it stopped, but that was just practical kind of stuff that we're sharing the love of Jesus. And you know what? There might have been somebody in that line that was like that person flat out on the ground that day. And what we did lifted them up. Even works at the movies. I have a membership, this one movie theater chain. And if you're in their membership, oh, you know, there are perks and benefits and One of them is you get free popcorn. So I went up to get my drink, and and he says, Sir, do you know that you have 13 free popcorns? No, 13. What am I going to do with 13 popcorns? Because I'm still accruing them, you know? I thought, oh, this is too much. And so I got my, and then... I looked to the person behind me. I said, would you like free popcorn? But maybe that person, you know, the person that you're helping out, they're like this guy. They just, they need someone to lift them up. And by the way, another thing I see here is that God cares about the one. There were probably dozens and dozens of beggars in this area because it was a good place to try to, you know, get support. But out of all of these, I mean, think of God's strategy Out of all of these, God chooses the one guy, not the many. And my point isn't, oh, God should have healed them all. No, my point is, out of all, God shows you that one. Because God cares about individuals. Do you remember when Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda? And there was this belief that once in a while, an angel would come and, and stir up the waters. And if you got in the water before anybody else, you'd be healed. But there was this one man who, because of his disability, was able to beat anybody and get into the water. And so everybody was in front of him, and he was really marginalized. He was way to the back, kind of forgotten, thinking, you know, God, where are you? Don't you care about me? Jesus comes into that area packed with people. And you have to understand, you remember that Jesus had healed multitudes before. He had no problem healing hundreds or more, but this time he didn't just heal everybody around that pool. Instead, this time he goes and he walks and people must have been watching him, you know, where's he going? And they're watching and he goes to that one person and he heals that one person. Jesus loves the many and he cares for the many, but he loves just you like you're the only person in the world. He really cares for you. I was kind of rewriting this whole message. That happens to me sometimes. But I just wanted to put some different things together. But one of the things the Lord really put on my heart was to let one of you, I don't know who you are, know that Jesus really cares for you. And you feel like this guy who is flat down and and his view is ankles and feet all day long, down in the dust. And Jesus cares for you. He sees you. And he would send somebody like Peter, and Jesus wants to lift you up. He wants to lift you up. Maybe it's out of your despair, your shame. He cares for you. And you're not leaving here today without hearing that word from the Lord, if you were the only one. And think about the strategy of God here. I mean, everybody had seen this guy every single day. You couldn't walk through this major gate without seeing this guy every single day. And that's a person God uh, chooses to heal. 
I mean, it was like everybody knew him. And so when this healing happened, it was an incredible testimony to everybody. This guy? That's crazy. The Lord wants us to reach out and touch people and bless people in many different ways. I read about a story about a, a village that had, in France, that had been massively bombed by the Nazis during World War II. At the end of the war, they went to repair the city and clear the rubble. And as they were trying to rebuild the church, they found a statue of Jesus. And it was really remarkable that it was, it was so well-preserved through all of this. At the base of the statue, it read, come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. Statue was in great shape, except that both of Jesus' hands were missing. And when the sculptor who created the statue found out about that, he immediately offered to repair the statue and carve two new hands and put them on, you know, on the statue of Jesus. But the pastor did something that maybe you might not expect, and I think it was very wise of him to do. He didn't let them repair the statue. Instead, the statue was placed up front and center in the church where it had been before, but they added a new inscription that read, he has no hands on earth but ours, for we are his body. You see, we are the hands of Jesus, right? I wish Jesus were here on earth physically, that would be cool. But he can only be one place at a time on earth, right? Because he's reigning in heaven, the Lord's presence is with us all. But Jesus physically isn't doing his work on earth. He does his work through who? Us. He does his work through you. You're his hands. You're his feet. If Jesus wants something done, he's going to use us. I mean, yeah, we pray about the poor. Oh, Lord, please help those poor homeless people downtown. And Jesus says, okay, you got two hands. You got two feet. Go down there and you help out. Oh, God, please help. We need help in our kids' ministry. Lord, please raise it. God says, you got two hands. You got two feet. And so you minister in my name. And see, there's all this stuff that we pray about doing. And Jesus says, I love you praying about it, but... I've given you the capacity to do this in my name. So you're the hands of Jesus. You're the feet. You're the smile of Jesus. Thing is, a lot of people, I'm going to say, most people get their impression of who Jesus is through us. I was reading a Facebook post by somebody that is living a really bad lifestyle and so confused. But they were just ranting about Christian and those hate-filled Christians. And I, I was reading it. At first, it just really made me angry. And, you know, I wished I could have an anonymous account. You know, I could just... But then I got to thinking about it, and I thought, you know what? For some reason, the only impression of Jesus they've ever had are those kind of Christians. I don't know. Or maybe that's their excuse for their lifestyle. I don't know. But I thought... People get their impression of Jesus through you, through me. We're not perfect, okay? We're never going to perfectly represent Jesus. But we've got to understand that we are the visible body of Christ on earth. He shows his love through us. He shows his mercy through us. He shows his good works through us. It's a tremendous responsibility and calling and a privilege as well. We continue reading here, and uh, it says, as we read on in verse uh, 11, while he clung to Peter and John, that was something I thought was interesting, that after he was saved, man, he clings to Peter and John. It's like he's clinging to the faith. He's not going to let go of these guys. And, and he's walking. He's using what God gave him. He's walking and, and he's praising God. And that's a great outline of what happens to someone who they become a child of God. You know, they're going to hang around God's people. They're not letting go. 
And they're going to use what God's given them. It fits into what I just said. And, and they're going to praise God. Worship is always the result of being saved. Look at, and it says in verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So the people were amazed. Remember this. I thought Peter performed the miracle exactly like a miracle that Jesus performed when in Galilee. You remember that at Peter's house, some friends brought a man who was paralyzed, just like this guy, and brought him to Jesus in kind of a unique way. They tore open Peter's roof. I wonder what his uh, deductible was on his homeowner's insurance, right? That's the cost of doing ministry. So, and they bring the guy down in front of Jesus and Jesus heals him and told him to get up and take his bed and walk. And the result was the people were like, what has gone on? They were dumbfounded. They were amazed. Peter does the same exact miracle and the result is the same. The people were amazed. They couldn't believe what had happened. It caused a stir and it brought a crowd And Peter now in verse 12 says, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people and he says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety, we have made him walk? Why are you looking at us? This is an important principle. If you want to be used by God, you guys, you cannot take the glory for yourself. If God does anything through you, just step aside and let God be the one who gets the credit, not you. God doesn't share his glory with anybody, okay? And he doesn't like it when we rob him of his glory. This could have been a place where Peter was tempted to say, well, you know, I was with Jesus. Instead, he just said, this is not us at all. And instead, he pointed people to Jesus. He goes on to say, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. And now he does what I don't think we would do today. He starts kind of pointing the finger at them. And he points out their sin. And you don't see this happening much. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer, that's Barabbas, you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. That phrase just has gotten to me as I read it. You killed the author of life? Now, of course, death could not hold Jesus because he goes right on to say, whom God raised from the dead, and to this we are witnesses. We saw Jesus alive. After he was buried, we saw he was in the tomb. The tomb was sealed. It was closed. The stone was in front of it. But we saw Jesus alive after his resurrection on the third day. We saw him. There are witnesses, hundreds and hundreds of them, that saw Jesus alive. Can you imagine? The word of the resurrection was powerful there in this first century. We saw him alive. We saw him alive. I saw him. Really, it happened. Can you? The excitement. In the book of Acts, where we see, you know, the early church's evangelism. The resurrection is mentioned 29 times. It was the forefront of the message of the gospel. Yes, Jesus died. He died on the cross. But you guys, if Jesus just died on the cross, you're not saved. He has to be raised from the dead. The price, it has to be verified that the price was enough. And he has so much life. Even in death, his life overcomes death and he lives. So the resurrection is so important. He goes on to say in verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect 
health in the presence of you all. It's the name of Jesus, not us. It's the name of Jesus. It's through Jesus this man stands before you. If Jesus did miracles on earth, he's saying, why can't Jesus do miracles from heaven? This is another piece of evidence of the power of Jesus to change a life. Your changed life is a witness to the power of Jesus. What you've seen Jesus do and heard Jesus do and experienced of Jesus in your life, that's your testimony and that's your witness. And as you share that with people, very vocally or indirectly, as you're the hands of Jesus, they get a picture of who Jesus is through your life. Jesus is lifted up. He is exalted. And our lives are a spotlight on him. And my prayer is that you will be, it will be clear to you that maybe the thing that's interruption in your life or the Holy Spirit will speak to you, hey, take a second here, stop and see, and look at this person. Share my love, however it might be, that you'll do that, and that the Lord will give you the opportunities this week. And just one more word to you who have been beaten down and, and you think nobody sees you down there, and maybe you've been there a long time. Jesus sees you He knows where you're at. And in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for its truth, for its power. We want to leave here now remembering what you say and asking you to give us opportunities to put into practice We have learned and you've been planted here in our lives in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Praise God for his word.
never runs out on me. Your love never fails and never gives up and never runs out on me. And Listening to Unity in Christ, the English Hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you. So, if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, Please feel free to email us at askhsgm@gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcast on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. Coming up next is praying for the next generation. My name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program, praying for the next generation. Today, let's begin by reading Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2, which says, "I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge." My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. The Hebrew word for take refuge is hasa, which means seek refuge, put trust in God, seek shelter, have hope, and to flee for protection. Mighty God is the protector, hope, safety, and stronghold of our lives, and we can totally. Trust him. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 27, verses 4 through 6. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me. In his tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Let's praise His name, Lord. We passionately desire one thing, which we seek above all else. We want to live with You every moment in Your glorious presence, delighting 
in Your Majesty, glory and grace. Your sweet presence overwhelms us by Your stunning beauty and holy splendor. We long to live our lives so close to You that You take pleasure in our daily prayers. Father, in the time of trouble, hide us in Your secret place. In your holy presence, we will bring you our offerings of praise and shouts of ecstatic joy. Amen. My brothers and sisters, have you been struggling with fear lately in your world? Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The Hebrew word for strengthen is emet, which means make strong, bold, courageous, and steadfastly minded. Let's lay down our fears before God and give Him thanksgiving for blessing us with His divine strength. Father, we come before You and repent for all of the fears and worries in our lives. Please forgive us for yielding to them and allowing them to rule our hearts and minds. Today, we choose to trust You with all our hearts and seek Your will in everything we do. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your living promise to fill us with your strength. Help us in every situation and hold us firmly with your victorious right hand. Amen. Now is the time to intercede for our families, our nation, and a world crippled with fear, panic, and uncertainty. Let's declare boldly in faith His living promise of Psalm 91. We who dwell and take refuge in the shelter of the Most High will remain secure and rest in the shadow of the Almighty, whose power no enemy can withstand. Lord, You alone are our refuge and our fortress, our God in whom we trust with full confidence and great hope. For you are the mighty God who will rescue us from every trap of the enemy and protect us from deadly disease. Your living promises are our armor and protection. We will not worry about an attack of demonic forces at night nor have to fear a spirit of darkness coming against us. Even in a time of disaster, though a thousand fall at our side and ten thousand are dying around us, we will remain unharmed, for these evils will not touch us and our homes. For you will command and send your angels to protect us wherever we go. Defend us from all harm and guard us in all our ways of obedience and service. We will even walk unharmed among the fiercest powers of darkness, trampling every one of them beneath our feet. This is what you have spoken to us. Because you have delighted in me as my great lover, I will greatly protect you. I will set you in a high place, safe and secure before my face. I will answer your cry for help every time you pray, and you will find and feel my presence even in your time of pressure and trouble. I will rescue and honor you. You will be satisfied with a full life and with all that I do for you. For you will enjoy the fullness of my salvation. 
thank you, Lord, for this amazing promise. In your powerful name, we pray. Amen. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. 
Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.